Hey gang, welcome to episode 209 of the No Proscenium podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson, coming to you from the No Pro studio, aka the kitchen table here in Los Angeles. This week on the show, we have a triptych of interviews coming out of our SIGGRAPH 2019 coverage. Uh, we've got Dan Larrick, uh, uh, the VP of production for Magic Leap Studios, Norman Wang, the CEO of Glassbox Technologies, and Diego Perluski, Chief Creative and GM of Intel Studios, uh, who's going to be talking about volumetric capture. Uh, these were three interviews we conducted on the floor at SIGGRAPH. I will set each of them up individually beforehand uh, in between. Well, you know, we'll come in and out. Uh, so a lot of music transitions today. Um all three conversations were uh, just exciting to have. Um, there was a lot going on at SIGGRAPH, obviously. And uh, I'll get into my impressions on the back half of uh, the show after we do the interviews. I'll, I'll kind of give uh, a few quick thoughts there about what I saw. I think I've done a little bit of that before, but I'll, I'll try and go a little more in-depth. Right now, at this very moment, uh, I want to take a quick moment. Uh, if you're new to the show, and, and it does happen, and an episode like this is a good chance that it'll happen, uh, you can find all that we do at noproscenium.com. We've got uh, the Newswire, which is uh, the, the heart of the operation, uh, just telling you about events and shows and uh, all kinds of other stuff, classes, grants, uh, that's going on. Uh, we've got reviews, we've got features, all of it's there, the podcast episodes are there, uh, and links to sign up to the newsletters, which uh, is where we started uh, with all this, started with the newsletter. Um, if you've been around for a while, tell a friend. Uh, we are in a period of aggressive expansion because uh, this is what we do now. Um, I'm doing this and I'm freelancing and um, th this is a significant portion of what we do financially at the moment. And um, that's terrifying. It's, it's legitimately terrifying. Um, don't know if you know it, but uh, the media is dying for various reasons. And the only things that seem to be possible are either a giant corporation uh, owning something and just you know, cranking things out uh, because it's got all the money in the world uh, or small little outfits like this uh, getting direct support from folks like you. And indeed, uh, we've had a wonderful milestone this week. Just today, we hit our 250th backer, right? So, you know, we, in aggregate, we've had more in time, but right now we're at 250 backers uh, concurrent for the first time ever. And I just want to thank the folks who jumped in right this week because uh, we had slipped a little bit and now we're back up. We're actually up $28 for the month so far. <laughs> it's, you know, hey, uh, I'm glad we're up that much. 250 backers. Here's the latest folks. KJ, Skylar Woodies, Kenna Warinsky, Julianne Just, Michael Bates upped his pledge, Chris Porter, Bernie Sue, Sashka, Max Saltonstall, Ritesh, Alex Anderson, Rebecca Fischler, and John McCormick. If I butchered your name, I am sorry. I am a horrible person when it comes to that. Please write in and correct me. Um, we had a swing of 12 backers from uh, last month to this month. We're at 250. We're at $1,460 a month right now. Our next financial goal is at $1,500. But here is the thing. Our real financial goal is $5,000. So we're far away from it. But I do not want to get that on the backs of a bunch of big donors. One dollar donations. So if you can, throw us a dollar. That is all I ever really ask. Okay, the sustaining backers, the people who do a lot more than a dollar of no proscenium, are Mark Balthazar, Jan Budman, Paul F., Lonnie Hanson, Ari Hurston, Sam Kinkin, and Samuel Mustry. All right, now, our first interview is going to be with Dan Larrick, the VP of production for Magic Leap Studios. Now, Magic Leap, of course, are the makers of the Magic Leap 1 Creator Edition. That is the 
augmented reality headset, uh, which uh, a lot of AT&T stores are starting to show it off right now. Uh, I might try and find one that's got it because I still haven't played Dr. Gorbutz yet. Uh, I had just uh, checked out uh, both um, both Undersea, which was the thing they had launched that day, which uh, was uh, kind of a, 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 a fish simulator. That's that's the wrong way to talk about it. Uh, you know, it opened up a portal in your in your wall, and uh, you could see into the ocean, and the fish could come through and follow your hand around. And there was just a really beautiful quality of of, of the the gentleness to the virtual object, the virtual creature, interacting with you in a very light way. So. And I'd also seen uh, Micah uh, at that point, their virtual assistant. Um, so uh, Dan and I had a really quick talk on the show floor, and uh, I'm I'm still glowing from my experience. You can you can tell in the audio. Here we go. My name is Dan Larrick. I'm the VP of production for Magic Leap Studios. All right. So, SayGraph, this time out, you guys have Undersea. So could you give me the elevator pitch on that one? Sure. So Undersea is a, a spatial computing experience, room scale experience for the Magic Leap 1 headset. Uh, it transforms your room into a photorealistic underwater reef. Um, so based off of you know a scan of your space, we procedurally generate uh, coral, and uh, beautiful vista to sort of create an underwater experience in your in your room. Twenty species uh, plus of fish and other aquatic life kind of come out. It's a very kind of like calm zen experience using gesture to sort of explore and interact with a beautiful uh, art and uh, like an amazing soundtrack. So um, to me, it's almost like uh, like planet Earth in your living room kind of experience. And um, we're really proud of it. We're really happy to be premiering it here at SIGGRAPH. And this is something that if someone's got one of the headsets, they can actually download today. Yeah, yeah. Today, uh, actually this morning, we launched live on Magic Leap World. Um, so anybody that's got a Creator Edition Magic Leap 1 headset can download this experience for free and try it out in their own home. Um, we also released like a behind-the-scenes video today where we're talking with the lead artist, the lead engineer, the lead designer, some of the audio designers, some of the other artists about how we made this experience. Um, because, you know, part of our mission at Magic Leap Studios is to create uh, exemplary content and kind of push the boundaries of spatial computing and then try to yeah. share that back with the rest of the community because we're trying to, you know, not, not just build great things ourselves but also inspire and enable other people to do that as well. What are, what are some of the major designs? Spatial computing is this new field, right? Uh, in a lot of ways, yeah. Um, what are some of the big design challenges that you guys are, are finding here that kind of get your creative juices? You know, so it's a really good question. And for me, you know, and for a lot of people on our team, you know, we have an incredibly diverse and talented team that come from the world of like film and gaming and you know hardcore app development i mean such an amazing range of people that have that have built some of the most amazing you know successful things in the world i think for me the number one most interesting thing is that you nothing about what we're doing is predictable like we're going into an environment that we don't know your room and we don't know where your table is or how high your table is, or if you even have a table at all. Um, and so all like the rules of normal sort of interactivity, like they don't apply in the same way because you can't really count on anything. So you're, you're trying to design for a possibility space, um, which is, which the reason why I think it's so interesting and so challenging is because it's, everything is kind of like new and different. And so, you know, with an experience like this, you know, there was a lot of time put into growing this coral procedurally because we didn't necessarily know where the surface was going to be in your room, how big those surfaces were going to be, the way that we place portals, you know, we're looking for spaces on the wall. We're looking for them to be of different sizes. We're trying to sort of find places that will make sense. And, and so that challenge of sort of going into a completely non-deterministic situation and trying to make it work out feeling really well, really good, really polished in any situation. I think, you know, that's sort of like this, like, epic that guides everything we do, everything from interface design to interactivity to how do we control your attention, how do we pace things. I mean, it, it really permeates everything we do, and I think it's one of the sort of, like, fascinating questions of spatial computing as we go into, like, ever-increasingly large dynamic spaces. How do you create content that believe, believably interacts with you and your environment? 
what do you find to be the the center of gravity then for these experiences like um so you're, you walk into a, uh, a room, you don't, yeah. you don't know what's going to happen. The, yeah. I mean, all you've got is the sensors on the device to sort yeah. of anchor things. So you know, what are the guiding principles for where you anchor, for, for where, you, where you put the center of gravity of an experience? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, it starts with you as the person, you know, wearing this device and having this experience. You know, we want to sort of harmonize you and the technology. You know, we want to create things that are warm and inviting and comfortable and um you know because it's a very um intimate relationship that you have with this content i mean we're unlike virtual reality where you're sort of transporting yourself into another place like i'm now on the moon or i'm wherever i am like in this in this relationship you're inviting our experience into your home or your office or you know your kids room so um that kind of intimacy that that creates like that relationship, I think, is really important. And so I think, you know, the, one of the big guiding principles is to sort of, like, understand and respect the user, um, understand and respect the space, make things feel natural um, in that environment. And then, you know, from there, I think, you know, we talk a lot and think a lot, especially at Magic Leap Studios, since we're really charged with kind of collaborating with the platform teams to push technology forward about taking advantage of the unique aspects of mixed reality and spatial computing. So um, the fact that, you know, we know and understand, you know, the physical layout of your room, that means physical objects can interact naturally with your space. Um, you know, that means you can anchor things to your table, to your wall. Um, you know, characters can come to your table and look off the edge like they do in our create experience and perceive that there's a floor and decide to jump down. This, this really kind of natural integration with your environment so that you you really start to believe that you're having this mixed experience where the digital and the physical content are blending together because the ultimate for us is where you can't really tell the difference anymore. Everything is just behaving so naturally and it's looking so believable um, that you're just having these natural experiences and you're not thinking anymore about this technology that you're wearing. Ask, ask one more question because I can tell sure. people are circling. I, I found like, there was just such a gentleness to the way the fish followed my hand oh i'm so and, glad you and, think so and, yeah and and how much time do you guys spend iterating on getting that type of interaction right how obsessed are you so i that's I, first of all i'm really really glad that you perceive that because we worked in this particular experience really really hard to create that relationship i've been lucky we've been doing a lot of play testing um all throughout it's a big part of our process you know we implement and we iterate i mean that's not new but in our medium because we're discovering things and because we're accessing new aspects of the technology all the time it's really important that we kind of validate the things that we're doing and what we've discovered is that there are people that are having these really emotional interactions with these fish i was uh with a friend of mine recently and he literally had this emotional experience where he followed he had this fish follow him around and he brought it outside and he brought it back inside and um so to get really specific and, and, and a little bit more technical, um, you know, on this project, we were going for a photorealistic art style. We wanted you to really believe that these were real fish. And the challenge that you have is as soon as you make something look real, if it doesn't move and behave naturally, then it breaks the illusion. And so, I mean, what I can say is to make a fish um, naturally turn and have that be believable and have that be quick is a really complicated complicated blend of the paths that they choose to take. Now, keep in mind, you know, the coral and everything is being generated dynamically. The, um, you know, the fish are in a room that they've never been in before. So we can't preset that. We have to dis determine based off of the layout the path that the fish should take and all that. So to be able to calculate all that, to combine that with like the advanced animation techniques that we're using so that a fish can turn on a dime and have that make sense, so that it can calmly follow you, so that it can follow your hand at the right distance, so that it feels like it's in your hand but not on your hand. I mean, lots and lots of iteration. And one of the main uh, inter interaction experience goals for this project was creating that really natural feeling between you and the creatures. So, so I'm really glad that that came across. That's, that's really, really cool to hear. So I want to take a moment to, to talk about uh, a little bit more about the Magic Leap. Um, 
I've been I've been pretty bearish about it, uh, at least before it existed in the world. Um, and now that I've encountered it a little bit more, I'm I'm starting to warm up to what it's doing. I'm starting to warm up to AR, mostly because I'm seeing how well the optics uh, technology is working, and that particularly when it comes to over at Magic Leap, there's a lot of emphasis on how it feels, right? Like, how are things behaving inside uh, the alternate reality they're creating? This is really key. This is probably the most important thing is the how, right? There's, there's a bunch of different ways we can take virtual beings and we can take these objects and put them into uh, these these alternate realities that we have, you know, I'm, I'm ultimately agnostic about the technology, uh, what, what headset you're putting on. And I'm much more interested in the qualities of the experience. What is the virtual being like? How do we interact? How does that feel? Does it feel natural? How much am I, do I feel like I'm being led around by it? And how much do I feel like I'm leading it around? There's a lot of headroom here right now there is a hell of a lot that needs to be done overall in order to make this stuff seamless um we're we're not there yet but, but we're a lot farther down the road than i think people realize um i think there's a lot of bearishness about headsets in general about any kind of mixed reality because things didn't blow up uh, the way the iPhone did. Uh, and everyone kind of want to default to, well, you got an augmented reality device in your pocket. Um, I want to point you, there's there's a really good interview over in Immerse.News right now uh, with uh, Katie Kennedy, I think, of, um, of Meow Wolf. I'll try and put links in the show here, uh, in the show notes. And uh, she talks about a bit about sort of the limitations of augmented reality, something that, you know, Meow Wolf's play, Meow Wolf has played with, and something that Meow Wolf's still excited about. Um, we're, we're, like I said, we're not there yet, but things are getting interesting, and it would be a real shame if the market just got impatient and walked away from what's going on, because artists and developers are just starting to play with this. All right. Now, let's make a hard segue into talking about virtual production. Virtual production's one of the places that is actually being financially successful uh, in terms of the entertainment industry uh, when it comes to virtual and augmented reality technologies. You know, the stuff that isn't necessarily coming home is finding a lot of use on sets right now. Uh, I had the pleasure of going to the Unreal user uh, group uh, where we got to see all kinds of ways that the video game engine, the video game engine that powers Fortnite, which your kids are probably playing right now, um, is used to create real-time, often photorealistic, digital effects, often in camera, so that a filmmaker is seeing what either final pixel or close to final pixel pixel is going to look like while they are capturing performance, while they are moving around with something as simple as an iPad. This is where our interview with Norman Wang, CEO of Glassbox Technologies, comes in. Glassbox has been working with some, some pretty big productions on the tools that those productions are using in order to move around virtual volumes, in order to shoot in real time, and in order to see what's happening in virtual spaces. Um, you know, one of the things that they're releasing right now, um, Dragonglass, uh, it allows a filmmaker to move through a virtual volume um, using whatever they're comfortable with. And what they're comfortable with might be an iPad with a game vice attached to it. And they're going to be offering this technology up, technology that was developed in order to be used on major production sets for under $1,000 for a license. This is about the democratization 
of this technology. And once this technology, once this film level technology is in the hands of indie creators, right? That game changes, but there's something even more valuable about, about it. And we'll get into what I've seen to that after our interview here with Norman Wang, CEO of Glassbox. Uh, my name is Norman Wang. I'm the CEO of Glassbox Technologies, and we make virtual production tools on foundation of modern real-time technologies. So, here at the booth today, you're showing Dragonfly and Beehive, and um, I wonder if you could give the the quick elevator pitch on on Dragonfly because this is it's it's nifty to look at, but it's also doing a lot under the hood. Yeah. So. Uh, Dragonfly is a virtual camera tool. Um, it, it came from collaboration with some of the biggest and most experienced virtual production team in the world. And what a virtual camera is, is basically a, think of virtual reality without a headset. It is a, it is a screen that we track in space that gives you a window into a virtual world, allowing directors and crew to visualize a virtual environment and a virtual performance. And the other tool is called Beehive, and it is a real-time, multi-user, multi-application collaboration tool designed for on-set version and data management. So with, with a virtual camera tool, it's both about, specifically, I guess, with this one, is it possible to both be doing live mocap with this tool as well as looking at pre-rendered scenes? Yeah, so the virtual camera tool... Um, we can kind of roughly divide it into two different applications. One is a team has already done their animation and their performance capture, and then they basically have the director or the DP come in and decide how they want to frame the action, how they want to edit the action. And then the other side is people wanting using it as a monitoring tool while they're doing live mocap. So what is super useful with Dragonfly as it is now is that we're Using it, we developed it in such a way that it interoperates between multiple engines and multiple tracking solutions. And that means if you need the precision, you can use an OptiTrack virtual camera or a Vicon virtual camera, or in the typical scenario, you can run it uh, wirelessly on an AR kit. And how, and how this helps, in particular, virtual uh, like performance capture teams is that previously, their virtual camera operator had to fight with the motion capture guys for space, for volume space. Because in order to move around and track the camera, the camera operator has to be under volume. So this is actually a really big issue for really complex motion capture or on cap motion capture on a small volume. So now, when everything is able to be kind of move off stage, on the supervision side and the visualization side, you can have like virtual uh, performance capture directors and performance capture supervisors be off volume, and then they can monitor, they can direct from there, and that has been a tremendous boon to a lot of people that are running a variety of different kind of uh, virtual production. So. Teams large and small are constrained for different reasons. And the flexibility of being able to run the virtual camera anywhere um, on pretty much any hardware has been very, very important for them. Virtual cameras have been around for a little while now. I think we've all seen behind the scenes footage of, of you know, on Rogue One at the very least and on the Avengers movies. You, this tool you guys are releasing you're using, some of what you're using is like off-the-shelf hardware, and you're bringing this thing out at a license that's under $1,000. So um, how big of a deal is this for you to be playing in this space this way and coming off these collaborations you've had with larger teams and, and breaking out and democratizing it? Uh, so we, we believe this is, a t this is a tool and technology that's useful for everybody. It's kind of like digital cinema, right? Like once upon a time, digital cinema is a highly exclusive thing. And now we all have a kick-ass uh, camera in our phone. 
So democratization, we believe, will naturally open doors for new creators to use old technologies in new ways. And that's really the name of the game here. Everybody is trying to figure out how can we make these tools more affordable. Uh, every year, the same hardware is it's either um, at the same price point, we're getting better hardware, or the same hardware getting cheaper year after year because we figure out better ways to manufacture them, or it's just because of economy of scale. There are more people using it. So the fact that we're able to do professional virtual production on AR Kid, on basically just a consumer um, tablet computer, this will only get better from here. Yeah, I mean, like here, here right now, like there's a guy playing with the system, and there's an there's a game vice grip shoved around an iPad, and that's that's the virtual camera. Yeah, and it can actually be uh, more flexible than that as well if you don't have this specific setup. We allow uh, remote streaming to any tablets, and then you can also use a traditional joystick to, to control it. So we actually have people that don't want to use a virtual camera. We have directors that's literally sitting there, like, playing, the, recording the movie like they're playing a video game with an Xbox controller. And for people that kind of want to get a bit more hands-on, they can definitely clip their um, controller onto an um, onto a Android tablet, onto a, a remote screen, and then they can run around the volume using that as well. They wouldn't be tracked, but if they have tracking solution, they can use an HTC Vive, they can use a uh, Vicon system, they can use an OptiTrack system. We, we support all that. And on top of that, um, we also have the engine level access to the users so that they're able to extend the core capabilities such that we can use um, not just professional uh, camera tracking solutions, but also really, really esoteric ones, like camera robots. So robotic arms, encoded cranes, and, and even drones. So if you can provide uh, tracking information from any source that can go into engine, then our tool will naturally be able to absorb that and kind of integrate it into our workflow. You guys are interoperable across a lot of the big game engines, and that's also the core of what you're doing with Beehive. I, I wonder you're, you're putting a lot of putting a lot of effort right now into having your tools be able to talk to everything. The industry is moving towards USD. Is 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 there a, a kind of deep irony in the amount of work you guys are doing right now to make all this stuff talk to each other, or or are you seeing it more as people are always going to have their favorite tools? and this will let multiple people in your tool always be able to talk whatever tool someone wants to play. Um, we actually don't, like, we think USC is a fantastic thing, and we are currently working on supporting USD. And as a matter of fact, there's aspects of our design that was borrowed heavily from USD. So the, so the intention here and what we're working towards is if you have an application that already supports USD, they will automatically support everything that we're doing. Because at the end of the day, what Beehive is, is a data platform. So we keep track of the data, we decompose it, and we break it down, and that's how we're able to make it so efficient. But eventually, we have to feed that data back into the applications themselves, into the application-specific format, so Maya and Unreal and Unity, and other application can recognize this as, oh, this is a 3D geometry. So it's kind of that translation layer. Right now, we have to build that translation layer for everything. But once USD is in place, once everyone has ubiquitous support to USD, we will just make that USD. And we are currently working with some very interesting partners to make that a reality. And as industry move towards unifying this as a standard, we will make, we will make it so that if you have a pipeline centered around USD, you can naturally tap into this kind of cross-platform, real-time, and the whole in-the-moment in production management aspect of what Beehive already provide, but with the benefit of being able to reuse your existing USD pipeline. You mentioned real-time. Um, the major focus we have at NoPro is about immersive technologies, immersive entertainment. And real-time performance being kind of pumped out to people is something that I'm starting to get excited about. How, how do you see the arc here of the tools in order to make you know, photorealistic, real-time performance be able I mean, will we be seeing people streaming this stuff and, and sort of like the way you know, you, people might do like a live television shoot? Right. You know, will that, is that in our near future? I think um, it's not just in the near future, it's already here. Um, there's a couple really interesting examples. Um, so the, some of them we can't really talk about, 
but there are the ones that are known are, for example, um, the work done by Future Group. And they've, they've actually produced an entire mixed reality uh, game show. And there are a lot of other people that are moving into a territory of real-time production in the sense that they're doing uh, real-time compositing on a green or blue screen. So they have virtual backgrounds that have been composited live into their live action plate. And then that output um, is more or less used as final. So they're almost able to deliver final directly uh, on set. And then there are even further, there are even uh, other more specialized examples of this. For example, real-time visual effects. So we know there are some uh, fairly large properties where um, instead of doing visual effects a traditional way, they're using game engine to create that visual effects. And in such a way that the audience really cannot tell the difference. Um, as a matter of fact, if you like whatever show, your favorite TV show that you're watching right now, uh, it probably has visual effects element that is com coming from a real-time system, and you don't even know it. And then the real fun stuff is the convergence of all these things in the in-camera visual effects. So using things like real-time interactive lighting, um, low pitch, so high-density LED screens and things like that, we have productions that are shooting their visual effects directly into their live action plate and pretty much delivering final directly from set. So they are, they're, move, they're removing almost all of your traditional post-production process. Maybe there's still a little bit of grading here and there. Maybe they still need to rotate out some of the things. Maybe they still need to do a little bit of like um, image stabilization. Maybe they really, uh, maybe that you know, depth of field on that close-out object isn't quite right. So there's still some of that room for adjustment. But I, I think we are really moving to a future where the whole idea of hitting render and then go make a cup, a cup of coffee is a thing of the past. First off, I want to point out that uh, in the roll-up, I called it Dragon Glass. Of course, it's Dragonfly. I did not mess that up, luckily, in the interview. That would have been more embarrassing. Let's talk about the impact of technologies like this on immersive, all right? Uh, they are the prerequisite for there being digital immersive. That's the impact, right? Um, there's a lot of ways that this future of ours could go. Um, hopefully, one where... Digital immersive is is largely platform agnostic, at least in terms of how things are creative. That's one of the things that's ex exciting about Beehive is that it doesn't really matter what tool the artist is used to working in. Maya, Unreal, um, Unity, doesn't matter. It all reconciles. The whole industry is going that way. That's, that's what the uh, universal format that they're working on is about. So that instead of us being focused on how the technology works, like, you know, struggling with encoders in order to get a freaking live stream up. <clears throat> Hi, YouTube. Um, we figured it out, by the way. Uh, but instead of worrying about that stuff, that people can worry about the art, the quality of the art. And then not to start worrying about how it looks, but move past that, move past how it looks. Once artists can just draw and have it appear, once actors can just act and have it appear, then we get into the qualitative part of it. Then we get into the feeling. Then we can get it back into story. We can get into experience. This is the ground floor. This is table stakes. And what's exciting is that table stakes are here. Now, we've been talking a lot about game engines, we've been talking a lot about effects, we've been talking a lot about digital capture uh, and sort of creating people, so much so that like that was really baked into my brain when I was talking with Diego Perluski of Intel Studios. Diego's the chief creative and the GM of Intel Studios. It is a big, big volumetric capture stage that is here in Los Angeles. But even beyond that, it is a force within Intel that is looking at these issues around volumetric capture. Oh, you, you want me to explain volumetric capture? Okay, sure. Um, I'll try and do this real quick. So, so far we've been talking about like scanning people and, and, and getting, creating like a virtual avatar of them and then having someone, you know, drive a character or, you know, be it like, you know, an animator puppeting or uh, an actor puppeting, right? Like this is how 
um, this is how Lion King was made. This is how a lot of the movies are being made. When we talk about volumetric capture, what we're talking about is this almost magical process. I mean, it's incredibly technologically complicated, which is why we call it magical. It's almost magical process by which uh, dozens or hundreds of images and all kinds of depth camera information is put together in order to create a real copy of a fully embodied person or fully embodied people that can then be moved around virtually. So when we talk about capturing a volume, imagine, if you will, the room you're looking at or the park you're sitting in, that there was a a ring of cameras, a a field of cameras, a, a canopy of devices that Uh, sort of encapsulated the space you were in and that it was able to capture everything in that space as if the room you were in were photocopied in full and that someone who had a copy of that collection of images wasn't just able to look at the image but was able to get up and move around the volume of space. That's why it's volumetric. That's why we talk about voxels sometimes. That's what volumetric filmmaking is about. And that is what Intel Studios is working on. So you're going to hear me mess up a little bit in this interview because I'm going to talk a little bit about driving things in real time because I was sitting across from the Unreal booth. But what they're working on is even more revolutionary than that. Okay, I'm uh, Diego Priluski. I'm uh, the chief creative and uh, GM of Intel Studios. So, the the short what's the short version of what Intel Studios is? Because I don't think people necessarily think Intel and Studios go together. So, Intel Studios is a, a new initiative we're running for the past three years. Um, our objective is to uh, enable, define, develop. And, and really uh, um, move forward what we call the methodologies for uh, immersive media filmmaking, uh, which is focusing on uh, real actors and real performance capture uh, with volumetric video um, and looking into all the immersive media platforms coming up today and how that content will integrate with these new storytelling tools. From a storytelling standpoint, what does working volumetrically do for, say, the director's craft or the actor's craft? How is it? How is it different from, you know, other forms of, of mocap or or some of the other techniques that have been being used for VFX for the past few decades? So volumetric video really uh, is uh, uh, the technique of capturing the light from all the visible angles. Uh, what that enables is a full reconstruction of the scene. Uh, think about this as a three-dimensional scanning of the entire environment. This means for the creators and the performers that. They don't have to think anymore on one directional uh, uh, performance kind of uh, angle, uh, but really have to perform and have the mindset that they're being seen from any kind of location, any kind of direction. Uh, This will also impact the way we uh, script content, the way we think about the storytelling. uh, But most than anything, I think it's a shift uh, from um, the traditional filmmaking, uh, which is uh, very frontal in the aspect of how you present the scene and think about the scene, back to a more theatrical performance where, where the scenes are much captured from all the angles and you have audience looking from all directions and uh, the performance becomes kind of the center play uh, in, in this type of content. Uh, how, how are directors responding to, to this? Because I, I, I always think about how, like you're saying, very frontal, right? Like the composition of a shot, you know, storyboarding things, so much emphasis in filmmaking in particular is about what's in that frame. And then with theatrical, it is really what is sort of the relationship between things inside the space. So are, are some people struggling or some people kind of really taking to it uh, like fish to water? What, what's, what's the vibe around making it? Are people excited to be working this way? 
Well, definitely. It's a, it's a total new medium. Uh, and I think uh, working with traditional filmmakers that are used to work within the frame, which it's an art of its own, um, and working with more theatrical and, and performance and spatial uh, uh, directors and choreographers. Uh, there's definitely um, a kind of a bound in between. Uh, some creators uh, feel comfortable to uh, move and start creating in this new medium. Uh, some of them prefer to use uh, their own uh, existing techniques to start creating their stories. I think there's, there's not really a migration or, or it's not really a one better than the other. Uh, we're just in a very new type of storytelling that it's opening really uh, new possibilities to, to go through uh, um, how we are thinking about content and how people will experience content. From your vantage point at the studios, where, where do you, where, what's the state of, a, of immersive entertainment, digital immersive entertainment right now? Because I think for the past few years there was a, many, many years worth of buzz and then kind of this like kind of deep depressive trough as some of the consumer stuff didn't take off the way people wanted to. And yet I know that there's, there's so much going on on the capture side. Uh, so I'm kind of curious where, where are we in, in things from a business standpoint? So there's definitely uh, uh, been an up and downs in uh, what we call the VR industry. Uh, we know the VR went up and then down and then we came the AR, uh, which started getting uh, much traction. Um, and I think from our perspective is less about the devices where they are today, but it's understanding that uh, the consumers have the ability to do uh, three-dimensional navigation, have the ability to move uh, around spaces with even uh, cell phones uh, that enable AR and, and the headsets that are coming. Um, our focus is creating the next generation of content and focusing on the storytelling. How people will uh, ex uh, perceive the content or experience the content, we're thinking about transmedia. Transmedia is the storytelling capability to go beyond a specific platform and, and start experiencing the content on different types of uh, angles, different type of, different type of consumptions. Um, so it's really looking at the entire massive amount of devices. Some will pick up less, some will pick up more. But the overall uh, trajectory is to a much uh, immersive uh, consumer device and users are now have much more possibilities to engage and give the agency. And that would bring us the, uh, uh, the, the basically the task or the objective to develop content for these new mediums. What, what's, what do you think is the essential quality in this medium? Uh, particularly if you're developing content that can be experienced or viewed across you know, multiple different forms of platform because it's a lot different taking a, you know, an iPad and walking around a space and sort of getting window in the world than it is, uh, you know, throwing a headset on or being in a, a space like a, a dreamscape immersive or a void where you're also physically interacting with stuff. So is is there is there an essential quality to the the kind of work that's that needs to be made? So I think we're we're in terms of quality. Um, we are going a step backwards. If we move forward with the traditional, uh, traditional 2D uh, film, where we move from uh, uh, 240, 360 videos online uh, to uh, HD and then to uh, 2K and then to 4K, when we move uh, into uh, uh, these immersive experiences, the, the, the uh, uh, additional dimension of content increases the data demand. Uh, and that requires for us to start looking at experiences that will not be able today to match necessarily an 8K flat experience. Uh, and this is where the storytelling becomes much more important. Uh, because what we believe, it's not the visual uh, that drives you inside, but it's the actual experience. And this is the trade-off that we're working on. So understanding platforms today with the limitations that they have as of today, there's still high value for immersive experience to exist, even though they look, don't look exactly at 8K. When we go around here, around Sigraph, though, we, we do see that like sort of all the components for like photorealistic, real-time volumetric capture is like all here. It's like it's like there's this giant jigsaw puzzle that that you can kind of put it together. How far out are we from someone standing on a volumetric stage, driving a digital character, and that being something that someone across the world is is not just watching but interacting with? Where are we in this? Yeah, I think the big difference from uh, uh, volumetric video to uh, the traditional mo motion capture is uh, uh, the essence of capturing the real light. So we're looking into capturing the real performance, we're looking to capture the real actors. Um, when we uh, look at the traditional motion capture and, and using that data to drive avatars, 
Uh, there's a lot of usage in that. Uh, I believe that uh, most of the interactive content uh, uh, will be using some kind of a hybrid between motion capture and digital avatars. Uh, but we know that there's also a huge uh, place for real performance and real actors. And uh, we will be enjoying both of them and all of them together. Um, volumetric video is uh, moving through a very uh, fast uh, growth uh, for the, from the last uh, two, three years. Um, and we're already seeing systems that are able to broadcast uh, some kind of a low resolution but real-time uh, volumetric video. Um, and it will be, uh, become just, just another medium that creators will be able to uh, play with uh, and hopefully enhance their experiences to, to new ways of, of storytelling. I noticed one of the things that you guys are also working on is, is sports. So um, could you talk to a little bit about how volumetric capture is, is going to be intersecting with consuming sports? So uh, sports is a, a very interesting uh, medium. Uh, it exists uh, as a real time. So think about it as a live show, as a, as a reality show. Um, so the ability to capture uh, uh, volumetric content inside the stadium and uh, bring the fans uh, into the possibility to engage deeper into what's happening in the game. Uh, that's uh, things that uh, we're seeing now happening uh, that we plan for a couple of years and the uh, feedback we're getting is, is amazing. Uh, the ability for the fans to uh, go into the pitch or into the field, stand next to the player and see how exactly uh, uh, the action happened um, is, is really uh, bringing much more engagement. Um, and I think it's uh, opening again new storytelling possibilities to the sport and to the entertainment. How do people, how do end users react when you know when you let them experience a volumetrically captured like soccer match? Like, how do people tend to? What tends to be the reaction when someone steps on the pitch, virtual? Yeah, I, I think uh, it's uh, very compelling and uh, people, uh, although uh, we talked about resolution and there's some um, uh, gaps in terms of getting into these uh, volumetric uh, spaces uh, um, on, on different uh, densities, um, the reactions are, are, are uh, overwhelming. Um, the, some of them uh, say that they uh, sometimes uh, even uh, make their dream true, you know, standing next to their great uh, uh, soccer player or NFL player and be able to perceive and stand next to them. Um, the reactions are, uh, I think, uh, much more positive than people think they will have when they engage at first stage. Uh, so it's surprisingly compelling, and I think what's compelling as well, uh, again with volumetric video, is that you're, you know that you're not seeing just an avatar or a 3D animated character. You're seeing the actual person standing there, or the actual actor or, or uh, player. Uh, and that uh, truth in terms of medium uh, is something very valuable that we take a lot uh, when we go into experiences. How do you see actors um, uh, adapting? Is even the, the wrong word, but like you know, an actor being captured volumetrically, looking back at their own performance, and 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 can, can you, is, do you have any, like any stories or anything there, like? kind of like illustrates what it's like for people because I think that's it's it's easy on the one hand to like talk about you know oh we're, we're, we're capturing person but it's quite different to, to actually see that or for maybe for someone to like see themselves and how they performed it so do you remember any times when you, you, you captured an actor and then let them watch what they had done and sort of how they reacted to it yeah, um, I would say most of them are amazed to see themselves in, in a new way that they haven't seen before um, and seeing their performance from all directions. Um, some of them feel very comfortable and get into a stage where there's a, really a full uh, angle performance capability. Uh, some of them feel at, at the beginning a bit intimidated uh, because they're used to be, let's say, they used to do their face into a specific camera angle. Uh, and now they have to do the, you know, know that they're being captured from all the directions. So suddenly um, that kind of uh, control capability in the performance gets away. Now you have to really let it go, know that there's no frontal camera. Uh, stunts uh, actors uh, were uh, very challenged when we do a performance because they cannot hide any punch anymore. They cannot, 
you know, use the camera angle to hide performance or, or to do some kind of tricks. Um, so the mindset uh, at the beginning, it takes uh, usually actors take about an hour uh, to be working on the stage, looking at the beginning of the content back and forth and then say, okay, now I get it, now I understand. And that opens for them, and, and it's a great release. You see actors, you know, suddenly opening their time performance, moving much more freely with their body, uh, letting go any kind of camera direction, and just focusing on their time performance. How long do you think it is until this kind of content is is kind of the norm's the wrong term? But how long till till we see this kind of all the time? How long till it's um, just shy of commonplace? So definitely we're, we're really at the early beginning um, there's a lot of, uh, if we look at the end-to-end uh, -end pipeline uh, from the content creator all the way to the consumer, uh, there's a lot of challenges that comes with the big data. And uh, back to the question we had at the beginning, why Intel uh, on Intel Studios? Intel is, is uh, really a data company and focusing on big data compute. Um, and for that, the Intel Studios initiative stands exactly on, the, on that uh, uh, interesting intersection point between uh, uh, new media formats, new storytelling capabilities, and handling the challenges of uh, big data compute. Um, we are uh, really building these infrastructures uh, in the next uh, two, three years. Um, and the belief is with you know, the, the typical examples of 5G um, and new VR and, and, and uh, uh, remote uh, compute capabilities really enable this, this new media format that requires so much for uh, data demand uh, to be much more accessible and popular for any kind of uh, user consumer. Okay, so capturing real human performance in space, in that space where you can move around. I always talk about how I was watching uh, a feed of Benedict Cumberbatch playing Hamlet from the Barbican in London, and I was sort of, of course, you're, you're, you're in a movie theater, you're watching it. And you're at the mercy of whoever is directing the the live feed for when you get a close-up or you get a medium shot or, or a wide shot. You don't get the experience of sitting in the theater and just watching. They don't do that to you because they 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 want to give you the more filmic thing. But how much more interesting would it be if we were suddenly, as we are in sleep no more, free to move around that stage, free to pick the close-ups we want to. And of course, because we're not really there, we're not interfering with the actors. Kind of magical, maybe a little creepy, but definitely magical. When we talk about live immersive and digital immersive kind of coming to a point uh, and finding ways to monetize what people are doing and finding ways to bring this stuff to more people, Volumetric video is a big part of that equation. Now, there are a ton of barriers. There are obstacles to get over. Um, pipes, just, just, just getting these tubes big enough to get this video down. Um, definitely when it comes to anything that might be interactive. Uh, the scale of these spaces, how the technology works. There's, there's tons of things in the way. But you know what? Films used to be impossible for regular folk to make as well. And now it happens. Doesn't always mean that they're good. Mm -mm, no. But the, the democratization of this technology does mean that there's a greater chance that new voices will be discovered. And right now, our field is pretty much nothing but new voices. So I'm really truly excited. I can feel it. Like I, I'm, I'm, I got plenty of reasons not to be excited these days. But when I think about what volumetric can do, particularly when you start to kind of pepper these tools together, right? You take the volumetric, you take AR, you take uh, you know, the real-time digital so that things are starting to you know, get enhanced a little bit or, or look as good or, or pro some processing is being done on some side of this to make, things, make sure things stay sharp, right? When I think about how you can piece these technologies together and then one day I could take this Oculus Quest, which is in a case here on my table, and put it on and then suddenly be somewhere else. 
see people, see people I know maybe. Most excitedly, see performers and go to a show halfway around the world while it's happening. That is on the horizon. And so much of it is already within reach. Will we get there? Oh man, that's a question. One that I don't have the power to, to, to make. If I, could, if I could put that gauntlet on and snap those fingers, you know, that'd be one of the things I'd wish for. What we can do is we can keep working towards a better, more interesting tomorrow, right? So there's other things that happened at SIGGRAPH, uh, plenty of other stuff that was cool. Like I mentioned the, the, un- the Unreal setup. I was, I was totally, totally, totally blown away uh, by what I was seeing because uh, on the graphic side, just, just, just the fact that things are looking as good as they are in real time and that stuff is being assembled in camera and that we're getting back to the, the human element of production, uh, I really think um, we're going to take some steps away from sort of how rote and formulaic some of the big set pieces of of action films have gotten uh, and, and get back to something that feels a lot more grounded and also a lot more dynamic because so much stuff ha- is weightless. Uh, some of my favorite movies of the past few years, like Black Panther, have been you know marred by weightless special effects sequences. Uh, the climax of that film features, you know, two CGI characters battling out with each other. It just feels like two CGI characters. Like it, 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 it hurts my soul because the dramatic conflict is so great, and then it's physicalized, and that's what you want in an action film. You want things to be like, you know, melodramatically, you know, uh, you know, happen. Where you know, anyway, that's for another show, another show that may exist at some point soon. But when you're able to capture it in real time and you're able to have people you know tweak their performances and you have stunt performers and actors all working and you're seeing it live you know it just it just you get closer to the thing itself you get closer to that feeling that the imaginary is real and that we can maybe be better than what we are which is kind of the point of an imagination when you think about it. Okay, enough of that. Once again, thanks to everyone who's been backing the show. 250 backers uh, is a really big deal. I know a lot of you who listen are part of that crew. Um, I thank you so much for it. We're going to spend the rest of this month driving hard on the Patreon, but also driving hard on spreading the word. We're looking at some new channels in terms of how we get things out there. We're, we're, we're looking at just kind of you know, tightening up the calendar, but also increasing the volume because the more people who know about the work we're doing, uh, the, the easier it is for us to connect folks with your work for those of you who are creators. That is ultimately our mission. Our mission is one of discovery and advancement. Um, and we're in discovery mode. And we do need your help. We don't advertise. We don't have a budget for that. We don't spend money on all that sort of stuff. So word of mouth, share, 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 particularly everything immersive this week. It's so useful to share. Share some of the stuff on SIGGRAPH. Share this episode. Um, I know it's ridiculous. Um, like and share, like and share. It's practically a song. It is so, so critical to making this possible. Um, if you're a Patreon backer, you know exactly what's at stake right now. I've told you about that. Um, and I just want to make sure that we have a solid foundation moving forward. Um, I know none of this is easy for, for the world's not easy right now. Um, so I'm trying as best we can to light a candle, put it on the hill and have us all reach that hill. My cat is now here and wants attention. So I'm going to do the credits. The sustaining backers of No Proscenium are on a different tab, and I don't want to mess up everyone's name. Here we go. The sustaining backers are Mark Balthazar, Jan Budman, Paul F., Lonnie Hanson, Ari Hurston, Sam Kinkin, and Samuel Mustry. The music for No Proscenium is by Chris Porter 
of the Speakeasy Society. You can find everything we do at nopersinium.com. We're at no underscore proscenium on Instagram. I highly encourage you to follow us on Instagram because once we get enough followers, then we get links swiping. Uh, and we are at no proscenium on Twitter and Facebook uh, coming at you all the time. If you have a show you want us to know about, pitches at nopersinium.com. Just know it often takes us a couple of days to get something up because of the volume. We are a small volunteer crew pirate armada i am the only paid employee and i'm paid by you patreon.com slash no presidium my name your humble servant is no one else and until next time i'll see you at the show